Welcome to the iLead Podcast. My name is Albert Huynh, and on this show, we'll talk about the essential process of leadership development and its human impact on the engineering community. What's leadership, you may ask? At iLead, we believe that it's the skills and mindsets that foster self-awareness, self-efficacy, empathy, teamwork, and the ability to navigate organizations and systems in society that help engineers lead change to build a better world. On today's episode, Annie Simpson, Associate Director of Troost iLead, will be in conversation with Dr. Emily Moore, Director of Troost iLead and Professor of Engineering Leadership at the University of Toronto. We'll hear about the keys to Emily's success in industry and academic leadership, her experience as a woman in engineering, and some of the pivotal moments that have influenced her, including the tragic events of December 6, 1989. Let's have a listen. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us. We are launching this podcast on December 6, 2021. December 6 is Canada's National Day of Remembrance for Violence Against Women and marks a very important day for engineering. On December 6, 1989, a man entered a mechanical engineering class at the Ecole Polytechnique in Montreal. He separated the men from the women and opened fire. 14 women were killed that day and others were injured. To honor this day and to acknowledge the ongoing prevalence of gender-based violence, but also to amplify the conversation about women in engineering and women in engineering leadership, I'm so excited to speak with Dr. Emily Moore. So let me tell you a bit about Professor Emily Moore. Emily is the director of Troost iLead, She came to the University of Toronto after more than 20 years in industry. She started her career at the Xerox Research Centre of Canada, scaling up new materials and processes from the lab to manufacturing and learning a great deal about leading and managing teams along the way. She then spent 10 years at Hatch, a global engineering firm serving the mining, energy, and infrastructure sectors, where she led international teams, first as the director of technology development, and then as managing director, Water. Emily was the inaugural chair of Hatch's global diversity and inclusion efforts. And fun fact, Emily is also a Rhodes Scholar and completed her PhD in physical chemistry at Oxford University. Finally, Emily has won many awards. In 2016, the Canadian Society for Chemical Engineering awarded her for her outstanding accomplishments. And that same year, she was named as one of the top 100 inspirational women in mining. I know Emily as a deeply kind and wickedly smart leader and mobilizer. So welcome, Emily. We're so happy to have you. I'm glad to, to be talking with you. It's kind of weird to be recording our conversation because we talk all the time at iLead. So it's yes, kind of, it is. Uh, but it's an important <laughs> occasion to, to, to do this. So I'm really honored yeah. to, to be able to engage in this conversation with you. Okay, amazing. Well, I'm really, I'm, I'm really honored that I get to draw this history and experience out for, for so many people to, to hear broadly. So I want to start with December 6th. I know that the events of that day had a profound impact on you. And I wonder if you could tell us um, who you were, where you were, and how that event affected you. Sure. So on December the 6th, 1989, I was um, writing exams 
in my third year of chemical engineering at the university, or sorry, at Queen's University. Um, and I had done, at that time, engineering, I think we were 16% women in engineering at Queen's at the time. And, uh, and so it was very, still a very male, um, very male discipline as it, as it still is today, but maybe a little bit less so. Um, I had gone to an all-girls school, and so um, I certainly had a really strong sense of I could do anything. That was sort of what was, in, you know, inculcated in me at, in my education. Um, and when I got to uh, Queens, I was definitely kind of one of those all the all one of the boys, <laughs> sort of the honorary boy kind of approach to being in engineering. Um, but when I came out of the um, John Deutsch University Center, where we wrote our exams, which is basically the big hockey arena, um, I, when I came out, someone came running over and told me that this had happened in Montreal. And, at, you know, remembering in 1989, there was no internet, there were no cell phones. So the way people learned about this was because they heard the news on the radio or their mother called them to let them know. And certainly the, later that day, I spoke to my mother who was, you know, in a state because I was literally doing the things that those women were doing. They were actually writing exams um, at, at, in Montreal. And so the, the, the closeness of my age, my stage, and what I was actually doing, being a woman in engineering, writing exams, the vulnerability um, really hit home in a way that I would say, um, you know, women's issues. I've always sort of had this very positive approach to things have changed. The world is my oyster, go out and, and serve. And uh, I think there it was like the veil was ripped away and you could see um, that something was wrong. Mm. In the aftermath, partly again, because the information was coming through newscasts and, and we were all in exams. And so I remember, I'm not sure if it was that day or that weekend speaking to, I was the external services coordinator for NSHOC, which meant I was the person writing the letter of condolence to, um, to the Ecole Polytechnique, to my, my contemporaries there. And I was speaking with, um, the NSHOC president at the time, who was, you know, in the middle of studying for exams, was kind of aware that this had happened, but not really paying attention. And I remember him telling, saying to me, oh, don't, you know, don't overreact. This is just one crazy person. And I think there was a lot of initially that knee-jerk reaction that this is just one crazy person. But the power of what happened that day was it actually shifted the conversation in a way, I think. And I knew even though, yes, clearly this person was crazy, I knew this was part of a spectrum of, mm -hmm. of and, and I had a real shift in my perspective on what was going on in the world and what needed to be addressed in the world. So I always say December the 6th was the day that I became a feminist. And to me, being a feminist is recognizing that there is a societal problem that has to change, um, that it's not just down to individuals, that there's a bigger system at work. And while this individual was clearly um, ill and, you know, whatever we want to use the words to describe him, um, it was also part of a spectrum of violence. And that spectrum exists and we know that it exists. And it's, you know, it's from domestic violence all the way through to, um, to the, the, what happened that day. And so for me, it really changed the way I looked at the world and, um, and, and, and has actually led to a lot of discussion and change over the last 30 plus years. Um, so that, that it's been, um, you know, I've been, I've been a part of, and many of my colleagues have been a part of, it's been become a real legacy. Mm. 
Well, when you speak about the the lifting of the veil and that sort of um, uh, it, it being revealed that that there's a there's a pattern, there's a systemic, there's something systemic happening here, and how that shifts perspective and also mobilizes action um, in in a different way. I'm curious because obviously this was such a pivotal, profound moment for you. You were a student leader. You were you you were super engaged um, as a as a young leader. Um, what did you learn about yourself? in this time and about your leadership and, and, you know, anything else you want to say about, about, um, being a young woman and being a powerful leader, like what else, what else can you tell us about that? Yeah. So, um, you know, this literally spurred me to action. So I I would say that I, um, I was always a leader in school. And when I got to university, you know, in first year, I would have run for the, um, a student rep to faculty council and, But I would say that my leadership was motivated by um, service, service and wanting to participate, wanting, which was, which was great, but it was, it was not motivated by a desire for change. Mm. It was motivated by wanting to be a part of something bigger, which is not a bad reason to want to be a leader. Mm -hmm. But on December the 6th, that idea that I wanted to be a part of change, that, that motivation, and we could call that political, whatever we want to call it, there was something that shifted around why I wanted Mm -hmm. to be a leader um, and, and to take action. And so that the, the Montreal massacre happened on December the 6th, 1989. I, I ran for um, student government president uh, in, in that spring. And I don't think I would have run if that hadn't happened because um, what was happening on campus at the time was this, there was already things happening on campus at the time around gender issues and gender violence. It was actually a big conversation and I had been out of the conversation. I hadn't really been participating. I had been observing but I was then willing to sort of step into the conversation and, you know, take on the student government leadership leadership role. And we did anyhow, a whole bunch of things that we did, which ultimately was what led me to winning the Rhodes scholarship was the work that I did that year. So really changed me from saying, I want to be the AMS president Mm -hmm. because um, I, you know, I I, want to be in charge or I think I'm good at this stuff. Um, which I don't think would have been enough motivation for me to give up a year of engineering because that's what I had to do to, I want to be the AMS president because I want to make change on campus. And I want to, you know, these are important conversations that I think I can facilitate. So I think that's really what changed for me. Yeah. And the other thing that changed for me was um, a recognition that the fact that I was a woman mattered Mm -hmm. and that rather than, not that I was masking being a woman, I was very clearly a woman in engineering, but talking about being a woman in engineering um, was something I hadn't really done a lot. And I know in my archives, sort of in my filing cabinet, I, I a few years ago, I found this article that I wrote to one of my classmates from St. Mildred's, my high school. We'd both gone to Queen's Chemical Engineering together and we wrote letters back and forth to each other and published them around a year in what had we learned? What were we thinking of? What was still resonating for us? And so bringing that like that identity as a woman, as a woman who was impacted and taking like, this very public and vulnerable 
um, sharing of, of that as part of being a leader was something that I, I don't think I had really done before in a way that was, you know, that was profound. Um, I had sort of been more the, the clown, the clown leader, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, as opposed to the vulnerable leader. And, and, uh, and so that also really shifted for me. So I want to just kind of, um, a couple of things that I'm hearing that I think are really relevant to our listeners and particularly to our student listeners is really hearing that arc of engaging in leadership activities because you were drawn to be of service and you wanted to be, you wanted to participate and build community and that shift from um, community and, and participation and service to whoof, change, change. And I, I'm sure that students who are listening are drawn to leadership for various reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and those are all really great reasons, but maybe just a, a word of encouragement to, um, to reflect on what draws, what draws each of our listeners into leadership? Yeah. What are yeah. those motivating factors? And then the other thing you said, Emily, which, which really um, feels so relevant to so many people who will be listening is about embracing the various elements of our identity, including the vulnerable ones mm-hmm. and really, and really embracing them and standing in them and knowing that to speak from various identities is a real gift to the profession. It's a gift to the community that, um, standing tall in who we are and bringing forth our experience is really important. So I'm hearing that shift yeah. that you went through of sort of um, kind of sent, putting at center stage, like, yes, I, I am a woman. And as a result of that, I have a different experience, a different perspective, and my voice is important. Yeah. Um, yeah. That differentiation is important. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, it's funny, as you're talking, I'm thinking, um, when I was at Xerox, um, Xerox was about 30% female. So you're kind of at that critical mass um, because it was chemistry and chemical engineering in, mostly um, in the organization that I was working in. And so I had a lot of female role models and um, they had an active, very active women's group um, at, at a corporate level. Um, and so I didn't think a lot about being a woman again when I went to, um, at, to work. It was comfortable. Mm. Um, I still, you know, volunteered as a speaker to, you know, encourage high school students, that kind of thing. But I didn't really, I kind of started to lose that political activism a little bit. Mm. And then when I went to Hatch, um, it it was less female, much less female, um, being in a consulting engineering environment and being kind of more, um, let's say the representative of, of the population at the time, which would have been below 15%, um, women in engineering, um, and so when I was at Hatch, I was also moving into more executive roles. And so I didn't speak a lot about being a woman when I was at Hatch for the first few years. And it actually wasn't until the CEO, John Bean Keeney, asked me to step in and sort of get involved in this um, inaugural diversity work that we were doing um, that I was finally and I, I was reluctant. I was reluctant to be seen as the woman, um, even though I, clearly I was. I mean, it wasn't yeah. like a secret that I was a woman yeah. and a mother. I talked about that. But to try to um, step into a role where I would be doing, getting involved in leading change within an organization, um, that was a very, that was as scary, if not scarier, uh, than it was when I was in student leadership. And so um, I was really pulled into that, to that role by, by the CEO. Um, and, and it was interesting, challenging, um, but, you know, back into change. So my, my politics tended to stay outside of work, mm. um, at, which is, you know, I kind of reflect back on that about 
how easy it is to separate these buckets again. And what do you, I'm curious, Emily, what do you think that reluctance to kind of talk about being a woman and, and women's experience? What do you, where do you think that reluctance came from? Cause I'm sure that was coming from an intelligent place in you. So for sure. What, yeah. What, what was happening there? Um, I think, um, you know, I was, I was in a highly technical organization and I was in an organization that um, valued um well, especially as I got into running profit and loss, um, the, you wanted to be recognized for your technical competence and you wanted to be recognized for your ability to deliver. Um, and so um, being, being recognized for being a woman and a little bit of that, am I there because I'm a woman or am I there because I'm technically competent and, and a leader? So there's a little bit of that going on, but also... Um, and shifting from <clears throat> advocating and arguing for your team and your project and your, um, in, in the case of my business, when I was running the business, so advocating for what needed to happen there versus advocating for a more complex, um, nuanced, these are, this is what changes. Suddenly the conversation starts to shift away from the thing that is what you're measured on, which is yeah. delivering business profit and loss and, right. and, and being a great leader there to talking about things that are, you know, on the side of your main job. And, mm-hmm. and so sometimes that side discussion starts to overshadow the work that you have been hired to do. Yes. And so it took an invitation from the CEO to say, this is so important to me. I want you to do this for me to be willing to, to, um, start to you know talk more publicly about it or, or advocate more for change. Yeah. Um, and, and actually, incredibly, um, under um, John Bianchini's leadership, I think the conversation has radically shifted mm-hmm. um, and things are happening in the diversity conversation at Hatch that, you know, five years ago, um, well, more than five years ago now, um, weren't happening. So it, it, it took that sponsorship from the senior leader to create... Um, uh, I guess permission for me mm-hmm. to sort of step into that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. That actually reminds me of something um, that feels relevant here, just on this topic of like how we identify and the different elements of our identity that we foreground. And um, I had an opportunity a number of years ago to interview a, um, a group of female club presidents in engineering and, and ask them about their experience of being club presidents of predominantly male clubs to mm-hmm. sort of see how their leadership was progressing and what their experience was. And when asking them about their various identities and which identities they prioritized as their primary identity, all of them, to my surprise, said engineer. Yeah. Not one of them said woman. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that was so fascinating and, and interesting Um and but it speaks to kind of wanting to be recognized for for technological competence and ability to deliver and engineering know-how and not wanting to get sidetracked or diminished in any way by um by bringing the the gender conversation forward is is sort of how i totally. was there's you know, a wonderful i think it's a twitter feed called man who has it all mm-hmm. um which i highly if you haven't seen it i highly recommend checking it out and um, I don't, I don't know if it's a man who does this or a woman who does this, but basically I think it's British and they, they post these hilarious things um, advising men on how to do, you know, how to take, do self-care and how to have it all. 
but they also make these great t-shirts and it's pictures of a woman and a man standing beside each other. And they'll have like the woman's wearing a t-shirt that says engineer. And the man is wearing a t-shirt that says male engineer. And, and (laughs) you think about that, we don't talk about male engineers. We talk about female engineers. And so there is that sort of like qualifier female as a qualifier Mm -hmm. uh, that happens. And so it's, it's quite, it's quite fun. It plays with, it plays with that, that, how ridiculous some of the advice is that's given to women about having it all and, mm. um, and, and plays with it in a really, in a really fun way. And the t-shirts are absolutely great. So um, <laughs> I, I, I haven't, I haven't yet bought my husband, the male engineer t-shirt, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Okay. I'm keep all. that Check in it. mind for holiday gift. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So I want to go back. You've had such an extensive career, Emily. You had your years at Xerox. You've had incredible, you've had all your years at Hatch. And I'm wondering what do you attribute when you look back and sort of at the trajectory of your career and your opportunities for growth and the various leadership positions that you've had, what do you attribute to your success? What are some of the qualities or ways of thinking about, about your success and progression in your career? Um, I I think I think my major feature is, or characteristic is curiosity. Um, And that curiosity has led to me always wanting to learn new things, including about the people. I'm curious about the people that I work with as well as the technical work that I do. Um, So I'm, I'm a voracious reader. I'm a voracious conversationalist. I love talking to people and meeting people. Um, I'm not, technically so curious that I want to stay in one area. Like I'm not, te- I'm not curious for depth necessarily on a technical basis, but I'm curious for breadth. Mm-hmm. I want to see how the system all works together. And so that curiosity has driven me getting maybe a little bit bored when I'm doing something for too long. So um, at, after 10 years at Xerox, I was ready to move on. Um, I didn't want to keep doing the same uh, science um, and that, you know, so I kind of have leapt to different things and it's what's led me even to, to University of Toronto, because I'm yeah. curious to learn about a whole Big different leap. way of approaching. <laughs> Big leap. Yeah. And I'm now doing social science research with, with Cindy Rotman and it's really, you know, it's really fun. I'm learning about a whole other form of scholarship. So, so curiosity has been really important. And, um, and I, and I think, um, there's, um, I mean, it always sounds really ironic to say that you think humility is important, but there's a humility in not needing to be the smartest person in the room, which allows you to be curious. Um, so uh, that that being willing to um, um, create bonds with people because I'm curious about them and I want to understand what they can bring and then invite them to bring it. And that was really important when I was at, um, hatch and I was running the water business. My joke was that I was the person in the water business who knew the least about water. Um, the, uh, yeah, I remember early days working on a project and being surprised to know that if you drilled wells, you could get salty water, um, which is pretty (laughs) basic. Um, But because I grew up in Ontario, you drill a well, it's, it's sweet water. And that's not the same in Alberta. That's not the same in Mauritania. Uh, So just like pretty fundamental knowledge about water and I'm learning this. So having to have humility to, um, to be able to work with people that are desalination experts um, and be able to talk to, um, yeah, talk to clients in a way that 
um, they can have the confidence that I'm going to bring the right experts without trying to pose as the expert. So I think you really very important. And what I hear in that too, which is so powerful is kind of not getting caught in perfectionism, Mm. but knowing like I've, I've got enough of what I need here and I've got the people around me and that curiosity and humility is liberating it. Mm. So, so you're not held back, which I think so many people can feel um, a lack of confidence because they feel like they have to know everything. Um, For example, you know, and, and, and you had the confidence and the humility to let your curiosity lead you. And, um, which is, which is really amazing. Yeah. And I think, I think one of the best pieces of advice that I got was, and, you know, it goes all the way back to that, you know, being an engineer first. Mm -hmm. Um, so having that technical foundation and, um, when I was at Xerox, I was advised not to move into sort of strategy type roles. I was getting invitations to move into more higher level roles fast. And my, my mentor at the time, my boss, um, you know, said, make sure you get that technical foundation because that is your, that sort of your um, weight that you're going to take with you through your whole career. And so my expertise is in, um, I would say is in polymer science um, because that's what I did at Xerox, but I've been able to lean on that, lean on those 21 patents, lean on all of that work that I did to make, so that when I am feeling insecure, because everyone does, mm. uh, when I am feeling what, like, what am I doing here? I'm going back to, no, I mastered this area before I, I, I know how to do this. And, and I, then a reflection, reflection on what is the skill that I'm bringing um, that, that other people don't have. So mm-hmm. being proud of the fact that I, I think I'm a platform builder and, and mm-hmm. I've always been somebody who sort of pulls people together and pulls information together so that the team can use that information, whether it's literally in a spreadsheet, um, which is what I did at, in my early career, or whether it's bringing teams internationally onto a project, which is what I did later in my career. And now at, at, at uh, the university, bringing teams together across disciplines in something like I lead. Um, so, so that's my, that's my power, you know, that's my superpower and, and yes. feeling confident and, and proud of that superpower. It's not a technical superpower, but mm-hmm. I root it in my technical knowledge and technical mm-hmm. understanding mm-hmm. so I can combine it. Okay. So we're going to talk about iLead in just a few minutes and all that's happening there. (laughs) But (laughs) before we move into that, I wonder, you know, those important learnings of establishing that strong technical foundation, um, reflecting on your strengths and your superpowers. Is there anything, if you think about kind of recent alum or students who are about to start their careers, is there anything from what you've shared that you want to just kind of distill into some words of advice um, that you would, that you'd want to impart to young engineers who are starting their careers? Yeah, I think um, doing reflection um, is great, but I think also inviting input Mm -hmm. from um, your, your peers, your boss, your parents, you know, what do they see as your strengths? Because quite often we're blind to our strengths. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember my, um, I remember saying to my boss, at my mentor at, at Xerox, oh, you know, these people are so much smarter than me because they're so good at this and this is hard and chemical engineering is easy. And so, and, he, and he's like, Emily, chemical engineering is easy because you're good at it mm. and it comes easily to you because you have a gift for it. But 
you know, a mechanical engineer or an electrical engineer doesn't look at chemical engineering as easy, just as you looking at the electrical engineers and saying, oh, they're much smarter than I am because that's so hard. Um, you know, it's just, you're wired differently. So, so I had sort of missed that there was a technical intelligence that I had that I was bringing to the table because that te- that kind of technology just felt really easy to me. Um, mm-hmm. But ask me to design a circuit, I'm um, you know I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't I would certainly wouldn't power <laughs> up that circuit. Um, so Emily, looking back on your career and maybe your career. Um, pre I lead looking back on your years at Xerox, your years at Hatch, your education, um, your family, we haven't talked about your family at all, but when you look back on your life and your career, um, what, what are you most proud of? Mm. Uh, I think I am. Hmm. That's a great question. I never know what I'm most proud of, especially when you frame it in such a wide context. Um, I actually, it's funny, um, I'm going to get emotional. Um, I've actually said before that I'm most proud of um, raising my kids. Um, and one of the, um, I have, my oldest son is a square peg. Um, so I would describe him. Uh, he didn't really fit the education system. He's, he's, he really struggled a lot through his teens. And we really struggled a lot uh, on a parenting level. And I was in a high stress job, a lot of travel, um, and so one of the um, uh, proudest accomplishments for me is that I didn't crush him <laughs> um, and that he that we found ways to support him in, in his schooling and in what he did for him to sort of come out the other end fully himself. Um, and uh, not that it, not that we were perfect parents. Um, I certainly was not. Um, but again, that humility and that curiosity about who he was and that recognition um, that I, um, that I guess there was a, had to, I had to do a lot of work on self-awareness on why I was reacting the way that I was reacting when, when those reactions were not constructive. Mm. And I, things that I would do really, really well at work were a lot harder to do at home. Um, and so trying to sort of, take a step back and think, how would I have dealt with this difficult employee at work and bring that to my parenting? Actually, I was better as a manager than I was at a parent in some cases. Um, But Paul has also taught me a lot about where people struggle and and where emotion comes up for people um, when they're, when they're struggling with fit or when they're struggling with um, deadlines that are imposed and how, how we can play around with that. So, so I've also been able to bring that back to how I work with others. So I think my, my emotional intelligence grew a lot through parenting. And I, when he graduated from high school, he gave this amazing valedictory um, address at his school. And it was like the proudest day of my life because I was so proud of him, but also like we did it, we got there. So, yeah. So it was actually a personal accomplishment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh I can feel my tear ducts open. <laughs> but I, I just want to say as someone who, who knows you as a leader, I'm so glad you shared that example of, of Paul, because 
something that I see as, as one of your superpowers is the level of realness and um, acceptance of different people and different experiences that you bring. There's, there's not, you, you, um, I see this, there's, there's an ability for people to be really authentic and real for you. Um, it's with you. It's, um, uh, there's a, it ta- you, you know, we're talking about your curiosity and humility. Like there is this, 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 um, and maybe it's those stretch experiences that we have that sort of have, we drop our judgments, you know, and recognize that we're all in this together. We're all having our different challenges and experiences. And as a leader to bring people together in a way that feels accepting and safe and can leverage all those different experiences is a really powerful thing. And that's something that I see you do really, really well. So just want to, and maybe Paul, you know, I think Paul, Paul and and all actually all three of my children, I have two daughters. Evelyn is a natural born student. She's, Mm -hmm. she's um, much more like I was in the sense of school comes very easily for her. She knows how to navigate a rubric. Um, I didn't even know what a rubric was, (laughs) but Paul certainly never knew that there were rubrics. Um, So, so just really wired for the system and um, does really well. And, and Christine is my, um, um, has, has the emotional, um, a real emotional empathy kind Mm -hmm. of um, way that she looks at the world. um, And it's probably uh, the biggest thinker of the three. So having three very different human beings that you're raising and seeing where they thrive and where they struggle has really helped me as a manager, but now as a teacher, because of course my kids are the age of the people that I'm teaching. Um, So it's, it's kind of neat to, to be able to um, teach teach and be informed by my, my own children and and where they, where they have thrived and where they've struggled and how Mm. I can then bring that to hopefully to others. Yes. Okay. So on that note, let's talk a little bit more about iLead and, and, um, and, and I'm curious if you can share with our listeners, what inspired you to take on the challenge of becoming the director (laughs) of iLead and what have you learned from your first three years? Yeah, so um, working at a university was my dream job, except I knew I didn't want to be a technical research professor in the sense that back to that curiosity, uh, I, I, I was too much, of a, too much of the breadth to kind of build the research portfolio in a t- highly technical area. Um, but I was always involved in, in university partnerships um, and always loved being on campus, always loved when I had the opportunity to come and give a guest lecture or, or talk to students. And so that was kind of my dream job was to be a university professor. Um, I just didn't think there was any such role that would allow me to do the breadth and, and, um, and, and sort of bring my um, non-academic experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when, when the Eiley job came up and Doug Reeve, who was the, the founding director, um, had been whispering in my ear for many years, um, encouraging me to think about this because he knew he was going to eventually be retiring. Um, it, it was kind of like too good of an opportunity to pass up because it was the dream job. It was being able to bring everything that I had learned mm-hmm. from industry and leadership and, and all the things I had been thinking about around developing people. Cause I had been doing more and more of that thinking on behalf of hatch uh, and the diversity. And also as a senior executive um, had been getting more and more involved in sort of the HR aspects of, of the company. And so being able to bring all of that knowledge and professional expertise into, the, into academia 
and put some more framework, have that, that platform and that time to, to do research in that area as well. So it was really just kind of the dream job. I, I couldn't say no. Um, <laughs> I had never really taught in the sense of I, I'd given guest lectures. So I knew I was a good facilitator and I knew I was a good um, speaker. But designing a course and designing a curriculum, as, as you know, um, luckily, you know, and so you can help me, um, is a whole different beast. And so, um, and again, that curiosity and learning um, on, on how to do that. And, and the University of Toronto is a great place. I step, the creation of ISTEP meant that I knew I would be supported in that. Mm. So it was just sort of the stars all aligned. The timing was right. Um, and yeah, I, I just couldn't say, couldn't say no. And what have I learned the first three years? I've learned that teaching is really hard. Um, I love talking to students about who they are. I have this sort of as, you know, this radical curiosity. Um, I hate marking. Like, I just hate it. I hate the fact that we have to give people grades at the end. Um, That is, uh, Doug said to me, Emily, marking is punishment for the joy of teaching. So like you have, every job has to have one, one thing that you have to do that you don't love. I don't think anyone loves marking. Um, but you know, it's an important part of giving feedback. And I think, again, trying to move, trying to really think about how do we design assessment so that it's constructive, it's feedback, it's feeding growth mindset. Um, and how do we design our courses so that we're making sure that we're actually assessing the right thing. So I've gotten actually quite curious about pedagogy and all of these words that I didn't even know before I came to university. (laughs) Um, so that, yeah, I'd say that's what I'm learning the most. And then I'm learning a lot about social science research from, from, um, Cindy, our associate director of research from others in ISTEP who have specializations in, uh, you know, Lisa Romke and, um, and, uh, science and technology studies and, um, just lots of people that are doing really interesting work. Mm -hmm. And, um, I'm learning from them a lot about what research is and what research looks like. So uh, it's, it's fun. Certainly lots for your curiosity to chew Mm -hmm. on there. (laughs) Um, so as we wrap up here, we just have a couple more questions, but as, as director of iLead, um, can you tell, can you tell us what your vision for Troost iLead's impact is or what success looks like for you personally what's the impact that you hope I lead will have continue to have yeah so I think um I think there's there's twofold one is the impact on the students that we are interacting with between the co-curricular curricular um pieces that we do and I think that it's um you know we are now at the point where every student is being exposed to at least some ILE content in first year and many of them are seeing um ILE content coming into upper years um continuing that deepening that um and and really um demonstrating the impact on students leadership skills um and working with all of our great instructors and our partners in you know the communication program and other parts of ISTEP uh I think it's really exciting so you know success looks like every student um is graduating with a sense of how they show up in teams with a sense of how to work well in teams um, at the very, at the very lowest level. Mm -hmm. My dream is that every student graduates identifying with, with a sense that they are a leader and that they have that, or that, that, that they have a potential for leadership. Maybe they're not, they don't feel that they're fully a leader yet, but they're on a leadership journey and they, Mm -hmm. 
and they recognize that they have a contribution to make to, to, to change in the organizations they're going into. Mm. doesn't mean everyone's going to be CEO. Um, that's not it at all, but that ability to, um, to make a, to make a difference, um, which is really what comes, comes at it and whatever it is that people want to do. Um, so I think that's, that's the dream on the student side for, I lead more broadly. Um, we've been doing some really wonderful research and, and, um, the ripple effect of the research and the thinking and the pedagogy that we've been bringing to our classes and the way that we're sharing our programming with other universities across Canada and indeed around the world. Um, again, continuing that really, I really want ILE to be at the forefront, really at the, the thought leaders around this interface of leadership and engineering, because mm-hmm. it's a really, it's a tricky thing. And, and I think getting better at moving beyond um, um, sort of off the shelf leadership stuff that we bring in and deepening that context that we, you know, when I think we do that really well and sharing how we do that. Uh, and then, supporting that with further research, original, original thinking that we're bringing in and sending it back out into the world. So I think there's a, there's a thought leadership piece that, um, that we, we we're doing, but amplifying that, doing more of it, having more people doing it as we grow and impacting the field, both the, both the academic, the way we're teaching students, but also in, in industry, the way we're thinking about leadership. And, you know, that, that's, that's the, the, the big lots of, lots of powerful ripples there. Lots of powerful. <laughs> um, so my last question for you, Emily, and back to where we started here with December 6th yeah. and identity and what it means and how it might feel to be, to occupy an identity that feels um, that can feel a little marginalized within the engineering community. I wonder if there's anything um, that, that any sort of final words of encouragement that, that, that may speak to women in engineering who still feel like they're struggling with engineering culture or, um, racialized students who feel like they're struggling to be at the center of the conversation, um, whatever, whatever, whatever that might mean for, for different people. But is there anything that you want to say as some parting words? Yeah, I think, um, first of all, you belong here, which I know is sort of the U of T um, slogan, but I think, I think it's a really powerful mm-hmm. message. Um, and I think it's almost a mantra that we need uh, to, you know, we need to be telling our students, but we also need to be telling ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. Um, all of those students belong here. The profession is strengthened mm-hmm. by a diversity of perspectives and voices um, I'm also optimistic. Um, I think there has been a lot of change. It, it hasn't been as comprehensive as we would like, but de- you know, December the 6th, 1989 led to an incredible amount of effort mm. in um, trying to encourage more women into engineering with varying degrees of success. Um, U of T is one of, the, at one of the forefronts in terms of the number of women, both at, on the faculty as well as in our undergraduate population. So we have made actually huge progress. Our, yes. our, our first year class is 40% women. So more than double what my, you know, what my, what my, um, what it was back in, in the, in 89. Um, but there's still a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, and we now need to also be making sure that we're thinking about um, who gets to lead and whose voices matter and what engineering is. And so engaging in that conversation 
um, whether that's in your workplace or whether that is, you know, I engaged in that conversation through my career, mm-hmm. but not, as I said before, not always in my workplace. Um, and, but I, 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 I certainly did it through the volunteer service that I, that I did and then was able to bring that back in and integrate it into my work and now is fully integrated into my work. So I hope, I hope this next generation's a little braver than I was. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think there is more, um, there seems to be more receptivity. I've seen a change even in the three years in my leadership class and the way that people are discussing equity issues mm-hmm. when we do that unit. Um, and the level of fear in talking about it has actually gone down. So yeah. I, that's what I'm experiencing. Yes. And so I think that the conversation is happening, is happening at a societal level. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that, you know, we can argue some of it's performative and there's lots, you know, there's lots of stuff that, that, that people can be negative about, but I, I, I think the floor is rising um, mm-hmm. in, in these conversations. And that gives me a lot of hope. Um, mm-hmm. the, the final thing is I'm seeing young men taking parental leave. I'm seeing young men um, saying, talking about work-life balance in a way that my generation never did. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in that, that shift in generation, the shift in expectation, this, a lot of these issues are no longer women issue, women's issues. Um, these are parental issues or they're societal issues. So there seems to be, again, this sort of shift in um, to more allyship, which yeah. is really, I think is also very positive. So um, I think we have to do the same on race. Um, I think that's, that's obviously the next um, area that I think we're struggling, but the conversations are happening and that gives me, that gives me great hope. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Emily. I was really a, I'm so glad we got to have this conversation. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. It was great to talk with you. The iLead Podcast is produced by the Troost Institute for Leadership Education in Engineering, also known as iLead at the University of Toronto. iLead's mission is to inspire all engineering students to identify their capacity as leaders with the ability to influence positive change wherever they are. We offer academic courses, co-curricular programs, industry training, conferences, conduct world-renowned research, and act as a hub for engineering leadership education in Canada and beyond. To find out more about iLead and our vision of engineers leading change to build a better world, please visit ilead.engineering.utoronto.ca. That is I-L-E-A-D.engineering.utoronto.ca. Or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ilead U of T. Thank you so much for listening.